0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello. Let's meander through the minefield once more and try not to get blown up. That's pretty much what the show is now. Uh, well, Nate Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co host. Um, and uh, Scott, I, I want to begin by asking you a question. Mm. How do you feel about like, you know, uh, at the moment, if you want to travel internationally, uh, it can be very difficult. And in order to get to somewhere like Europe, sometimes it takes four days and you have to go the most circuitous route Hmm. in the world. Are you the kind of person who would relish that? Or are you like our producer, Knee, who has to do that and is very upset about it? It was the first thing you raised. When, we walked, when I walked in today, he, just, he was talking about his trip to Europe and has to go Japan and then Finland or something in order to get where he's going. And I thought to myself, that's a Scott Stevens trip. Wow. Scott Stevens would why, love that trip. Why would you think that? Because I think you'd like the meandering. You would find a way to make... It's about the journey, not the destination. My goodness. That's... All right. So, me's sound engineer. He's the one who's travelling via okay. Japan. And Sinead's the producer. Mm. This will reveal, I think,
0: just about everything you need to know about me. Okay. If I could be assured that I wasn't sitting next to another person, <laughs> I forgot to factor that in. For every flight, yeah, you can make those flights as long uh, as possible, wow. as long as you like, with as many stops as you like. But if I'm stuck next to somebody yeah. who's going to be constantly intruding into those moments of reading or quiet contemplation, or what uh, get me there as quick as humanly Why possible. Why do you hate people? I don't. I don't hate people. You do. No, no, I I don't. You like the concept of people. I like the concept. You don't like. I like the moral concept of people. Yes, I think the moral concept of people is something that's very very important and worth theorizing about and fighting for. Yes, but But just don't let other people anywhere near you. Right. If a
1: person turns up amidst your theorizing about their inherent worth, then they're going to cop it. Yes, they they will indeed. (laughs) Okay. Look, the thing that I, I mean, one of the things that I
0: have actually thought a lot about, and this is maybe because of my sensitivity to. I mean, I'm an introvert. I'm sensitive to personal interactions. I'm sensitive to not making interactions uncomfortable for other people, which means I go overboard to try to be as deferential as I can. Ah. Uh, I also try to listen very, very, very carefully, which means that any, any incidental interaction, I end up leaving almost invariably with a headache because
1: I'm... It's too much to process. Because
0: there's too much to process because there's nothing about the interaction that's necessarily easy or natural for me. Yeah. So I want to be sure that I haven't missed some cue. I mm. haven't missed a joke that somebody's told. I haven't missed a sort of a subtle nuance and they're going to be offended by it or wonder. You don't have to put that much pressure on yourself. No, but I do. Um, so what that means is something I've actually thought about a great deal and written about is the, is the ethics of nonverbal Cues in another person's Mm -hmm. speech, in another person's face, those things that are meant to communicate but can easily be missed, those things Mm -hmm. that convey a degree of pain, a certain degree of offense, these things that cannot be communicated through sterile digital media, but which are
1: indispensable to actual interpersonal reaction. But also have to be communicated that way because the minute they are made explicit, they become altogether something else. That's exactly
0: right. It becomes a form of special pleading. It becomes a form of soft or even hard coercion. Or the the indispensable human element in the communication has been altogether lost. So, I mean, what that means is I, I get really antsy when I'm trying to send... Those cues. And no one's picking them up. And nobody's picking them up.
1: Are you well, sending them now? No, I'm not. Well, okay. not
0: necessarily. But, you know, there's moments when I'm sitting <laughs> on the plane. <laughs> when I'm sitting on the plane and I have my sort of copy of, of Madame Bovary in front of me and I keep trying gently to look down without seeming to be sterile. Yeah. And the other person just has either no willingness or no idea.
1: So, so I appreciate the point you're making, but at the same time, there's also something wrong with it, isn't it? Of course there is. Because that Madame Bovary that you're reading... That's substitutable. You can, you can read that mm. at another time. This person... It's true. This might be the only interaction you have with this person. It's true. This is the one opportunity in your life you have... Yep. ...to get the full richness of this interaction right. Yeah. And you're foregoing it for the substitutable thing. No, that's the problem. I don't
0: forego it, which is what makes no, it misery. but then
1: you resent. But I want to. Okay.
0: And, and I resent every second should of it.
1: You, should you resent it? Why don't you no, just... No, I shouldn't resent it. Okay. But I do. Okay. So, so we found a chink in the armor of St. Scott. Oh, my God. <laughs>
0: it's fun. There is no armor. There are a couple of shoulder pads and one knee pad. That's all that's no, left. Everything of. else is completely. Yeah. But no, no, there is this. Now, now that you brought it up, Simone Weil.
1: <laughs> it's amazing. Of course we got here.
0: No, yes, go of course we did. Of course we did. But this is one of those strange things. I mean, are we most attracted to those forms of moral philosophy that, most closely appeal to the kind of characteristics we already have, in yeah. which case moral philosophy becomes a theoretical justification for
1: what we already yeah.
0: tend to value.
1: Yes. In which case, what's the point of it? Which is, I think, something that happens a lot with religion. Absolutely right. Where people say, I'll, I'll adopt a religion as long as it says what I already think. Yes, I think you're right. Uh, yeah. uh, or, or a God who happens
0: to already be in my image. Yep. Yeah. Which is saying exactly the same thing, but in a slightly flowery way. Simone Weil. <laughs> but for me, Simone Weil. I cannot imagine somebody, oh, this isn't entirely true. She's, she terrifies me. The way that she thinks, the way that she feels, the way that she theorizes appeals to me and terrifies me in equal measure. Mm. And there's certain things that she says with a degree of heightened conviction that I feel like I am compelled to take seriously, not because I want to, but because I have to. Not because I see something of myself in it, Mm. but because. So she has this idea that a human being is not an obstacle. It's not like a traffic cone. It's not something you can simply move around. Instead, she says the moral reality of a human being exerts a gravitational pull upon us. So Mm. that in our very effort to get around them, to avoid them, to keep going on our desired path. To get to Madame Bovary. To get to Madame Bovary in this particular instance, we get drawn. Into their presence, and there's something about the sheer moral reality of the other person that arrests us, that forces
1: us to pay a degree of attention. So that's something that I feel I just don't like. It. Right, but as whoever it was on The Simpsons said, sometimes they're just jerks. <laughs> just jerks. Then what do you do? Yeah, um, this is not actually what a wonderful discussion. This is great. This is actually, in a way, the the topic. Hang on, what about you? Maybe. As, yeah, as quick as possible to your desired. Yes, Destination? Yes, but not out of an aversion to people. Mm. Out of an aversion to air travel. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a totally different thing. All um, right. I'm in Knees Camp, I think. Yeah. Um, the audience needs to know two things at this point. One is, I'm picking up all of your nonverbal cues mm. because we're in the same studio, which is a very rare occurrence. True. And watching you animate it as you, as you somehow integrate Simon Vey into a question about air travel is a delight. It's something to behold. Wow. Okay. Um, secondly, it's opposite to the topic. Because our topic today is really about compromise Mm -hmm. and the extent to which it should be expected and it should be offered, particularly in the context of democratic society. Now, Mm -hmm. if you remove the political overlay, Mm -hmm. really, that's what your air travel conundrum is about. Is That's right. What what compromises should you be making to the moral reality of other people Mm -hmm. who just want to, I don't know, find out where you're going while you're in the midst of this again, entirely substitutable thing of reading Madame Bovary at that moment. Hmm. Do you, have you extracted from thinking, from ruminating upon this travel example, have you extracted any principles that you would be happy to apply to the broader democratic context? Oh, my word.
0: All right, well... Let's just get a few things on the table. Okay. I mean, compromise is, of course, the stuff of democratic politics. Mm. There is no conception of democratic politics. That doesn't involve. That doesn't involve compromise. But it's not that democratic politics involves compromise as a kind of necessary sacrifice that one must make in order to continue to live together peaceably. I think for a lot of people, democratic uh, compromise is kind of the price of doing business. It's one of those. It's like breakage. Um, It's one of those things that you factor in in advance. You don't necessarily like it. It's just one of those. It's one of those things. Um, so I think compromise is particularly important. It's morally significant insofar
1: as morality is significant within certain forms of democratic politics. And so that—that mm-hmm. that I think is exactly right. Um, it's, I think it's significant even if morality isn't significant within democratic politics. Yeah, that I think I'd like to prosecute with you. Why? What's? Well, can
0: I say one of the things that before we do? Isn't that
1: uncontroversial?
0: No. Oh. No. No. What you say is uncontroversial, but yeah. I think it should
1: be more controversial than it is. Really? Yeah, I do. I think what you're trying to say is there is a moral dimension and we should think of democracy as having a moral dimension. Mm -hmm. But that's a separate argument from saying whether or not that moral dimension is something we assent to. Mm. Compromise is necessary and essential in democracy. Yes. That shouldn't be controversial. But let me just add to that. We're not just talking about compromise in the context of democracy, though,
0: or in the context of politics, because I think compromise exercises us in deeper ways, or it should exercise us in deeper ways than it does. Um, From, I think, all too many of us, compromise necessarily comes at the expense of something like personal integrity, or living by one's ideals, or sticking to one's values. Mm. Standing up for for what you believe in. Exactly right. Mm. And I think even outside of democratic spheres, in the whole realm of interpersonal responses interpersonal engagements, I would also say, Walid, in the whole realm of our very existence in a complex, morally corrupted world, compromise has to be involved. Because the opposite of compromise would be something like existential or moral purity, trying to escape into the moral pure. And that then becomes essentially nihilistic. Um, the, only, the only option that one has In the face of the refusal to compromise with the difficulty of reality is essentially one's own extinguishment or one's own banishment from human
1: So I think most people would agree with that, at least once they take flight of their textbooks. Yeah. But I'm not sure it says a great deal because really what you've done there is identify two extremes. Yeah, that's right. Of course it hasn't said a great deal because we haven't started the conversation yet. We haven't started the conversation. We've, I thought we were well into it. We've done a whole lot of good intellectual work uh, yeah, yeah, so, so far. Yeah, it's essential to the topic. All right. right. The, the question is not whether or not compromise should ever happen. The question is about on what terms. Yes. And on what things. Yes. You would have to concede, would you not, that in any context, democratic or otherwise, there are certain things upon which someone should legitimately be able to say, I will not compromise. Hmm. Okay, how would you define those things? That's the end point of the conversation. It has to be. It has to be. All so, right. is, it, is that your way of saying you're not going to tell me? I'm not going to tell you quite uh-huh. quite yet. Well, no, I
0: haven't got an answer because I think there is something about this which is necessarily, I don't want to say situation specific. Anyway, let's, let, let's hold on for a second. Okay. So continue your reading, Madame Bovary. <laughs> so the thing about compromise is that Compromises can either be the result of or precursor to negotiation. So, for instance, if there's something about which I really don't have any strong feeling, matters that we might describe as value neutral. Compromise is just how you negotiate getting to either where you want to get to or, let's say, the second best option. Alright. So compromise is simply the coming together of two parties to try to achieve something that is maybe not the ideal for either, but is a net positive for both.
1: But you're saying they're value free. I'm uh, trying to think of a value free example that would apply. Would that be know, let's pick something silly, where we're we gonna eat dinner?
0: Yeah. Or my car blew up. I want a new car. This person wants X amount of money. I only have this amount of money to spend. Yeah. Value free would be I have something that you I need something that you have, you have something you need happened. something that I have. Yeah. Let's try to find a way of parting with it in a way that's mutually this. tolerable. All yeah. right. Um, so there's a wonderful Jewish political theorist I've brought up a few times on the show, Avishai Margolit. He's written a great book on compromises and more and rotten compromises. He says, basically, any conception of compromise falls under one of two rubrics. It's compromise that takes place in the context of economics and compromise that takes place in the context of religion. I really like the idea.
1: So, so transactional and sacred.
0: Yes. So within economic compromise, the governing ethos is effectively utilitarian. There are no inherent values Instead, or there's nothing inherent in the process. Instead, there's substitution. I have money. You have a car. I'm going to exchange my money for your car. I just want to hold on to a little bit of money and you want to extract as much money as you can. So the principle of substitution is how we do we barter? How do we negotiate in such a way that we make this thing happen? So with that... There's a kind of value neutrality to it, and I think in a great many political negotiations, there won't be deep principles of value, but there might be, say, principles of prudence. There might be expedience. There might be a kind of electoral calculation. If I make this compromise now, then I'm going to lose it as something that I can prosecute the other side over during an election. Mm. So none of these are value-laden. They're matters of strategy, they're matters of tactics, or there might just be, let's do this to come up with some kind of tolerable, what's sometimes called the modus vivendi, a
1: way of living mm. that we both find relatively tolerable. It's a, it, it's a slightly artificial way of conceiving of it, though, isn't it? Yeah, possibly. Because, I mean, I was just thinking of, let's say we're haggling over tax policy. Yeah. There's something more at stake there, isn't That's there? Right. So you're talking about a classic liberal and a classic labour mm. sort of position. Mm. I don't know if those things exist anymore but mm. let's assume. There's something of the soul of each. Yeah. A, each a low-taxing party. government is a value statement
0: about the yeah. role of government in society and the autonomy of a person, the proprietorship of a person over their own
1: money. Yeah. yeah. And also what is legitimately to be expected of the individual. That's right. So there's a, it's backed by a whole political, perhaps even moral philosophy. Hmm. So, what? And how- yet you
0: find parties being willing to give quote unquote sacred ground all the time when it's deemed to be in the interest of a tolerable modus vivendi because it maybe isn't a hot button electoral issue at this moment. Yeah. Whereas you get closer to an election or
1: when the other side seems weak, then you might decide to double down on one's own sense. Sure. Of so value. I get there are those sort of crass party political game playing mm. calculations, and there's horse trading and all all those sorts of things. But nonetheless, couldn't you say that if it's up for trade, it's not sacred ground? Mm, that's true. So you might pretend it is, or, or you might occasionally speak about it as though it is, but the fact that you've traded it means it, it's
0: not. It's probably not, yeah, yeah. Hold on to that though, because okay. I think that's a really important point. Okay. The other domain that Marguerite talks about is compromise in the context of religion. Yeah. In other words, they are sacred objects. And as he puts it quite beautifully, you can't compromise with the holy without compromising the holy. In other words, to compromise on this kind of sacred principle, you are by definition defiling that principle. You're making it common commerce that any hands can, can touch and defile. Here's my problem. I mean, there is a morality that is essential to politics. There is a morality that I think is essential to democratic politics. Um, But when too much morality, when too many moral claims, which are themselves nothing but value-laden, as soon as you make a particular moral claim about a particular issue, you're raising the stakes to a degree that any backing down then becomes essentially taking one's soul in one's hands. And if you've made wearing one's moral soul on one's sleeve part of one's electoral appeal— then, I mean, we've seen this time and time again in various forms of, uh, of electoral politics. Um, but when too many moral claims are used to stake out or divide up the moral terrain, it means there can be no backing down mm. without losing face, without sacrificing one's credibility. But when you make too, more, too many moral claims within the context of political deliberation, it means that there is simply no room to compromise. There is no negotiation to be made with one's rivals, with one's enemies. Because that then takes the form of acquiescence, of appeasement with the other side.
1: So would you say then that the hyperpartisanship partisanship that we're seeing played out in an exaggerated form in the United States, mm-hmm. but uh, arguably in a form that's observable in places like Australia, True. the UK, et cetera, mm-hmm. would you say that is a function then of the over-moralizing of politics? Yes. Okay. Well, hang on. See, so I'm not sure. What it, is,
0: what it is, what it is, it's a function of a misunderstanding of the status of moral claims and therefore a bastardization of the very concept of morality itself. If morality is the conditions in which humans find life together, there is something about a moral claim which is necessarily shared. It should be something that is communicable. It's all, it should also be something that is – I need to find the right word here. It is open to repudiation, a moral claim isn't something that one plants one's flag
1: on and then refuses to budge. Okay, but this is tricky, right? So let's start where you began this limb mm. with Are you
0: handing me a saw? No. <laughs> <laughs> I know that I know that smile. I usually can't see
1: it, but no, I know I'm it. Quite, I'm quite scared that you went straight to sawing off a limb. That's dark stuff, mm. St. Scott. I'm thinking Tree, no? Oh, right. Are Tree we thinking limb. you're anatomical? Well, I don't know. I just I, the way you said it, okay. the way your face contorted, I didn't know what right. you were... Anyway, you began this limb by talking about compromise in the context of religion. Yeah. But So religion's an interesting starting point to think about it. Yeah, it is. Because what's implicit in that? Religion makes moral claims, or perhaps it's better to say it issues moral verdicts. Often those moral verdicts are contingent upon not something inherent to that verdict itself or even to that issue itself, Mm -hmm. but the one who is doing the issuing, namely God or whatever multiple deities might exist in a polytheistic religion, whatever, Mm -hmm. that sacred figure Mm -hmm. that has the authority to issue such verdicts. Is that communicable? Is that shareable? Is that open to repudiation? I would suggest it's shareable to the extent that one can articulate it it's not shareable to the extent that once we have a disagreement about that fundament, there's not really anywhere to go. Yeah. And I would kind of feel forced to conclude that that's ultimately inevitable and appropriate. Yeah. But I wouldn't feel comfortable therefore saying that everyone who begins from such a premise must forego that moral claim because it's insufficiently communicable or open to repudiation. Oh, I love this. I could
0: never have imagined this is the direction the conversation would be going. There are a couple of things you're leaving out. Okay. One is the inevitability of a human mediator in any kind of issuing of a divine verdict, unless we're talking about unmediated divine communication, um, which then becomes very, very, very difficult.
1: Yeah. I mean, we can talk about... I don't think we are talking about it. No, we're
0: not. No, we're not. In which case, you're left with the status of this holy thing. Mm. This holy claim, this holy verdict, this holy judgment. One of the funny things about the very nature of holiness, and there's significant religious theological disagreement about the status of holiness itself, is holiness diminished by contact with the real. Mm. Is holiness diminished by contact with, quote unquote, unclean, unholy persons? Or is there something about a claim itself that by its very communication can uh, this is beginning to get very, very obscure, and I don't mean it to be. Beginning. Is, is there something about a moral claim that isn't meant to be a sanction, but is meant rather to be an invitation? In other words, can the very passing of a sacred object from hand to hand to hand sanctify the hands that touch it rather than the hands that touch it, defiling somehow the object? This is, this is my conception of the nature of a moral claim. It seems to me that there are certain things which are moral absolutes. Mm. Uh, This is the bedrock upon which human discourse, interpersonal reaction, cooperation, the possibility of a life together. These are the things that those forms of life are dependent upon. Many other moral claims, however, they come to me in the mouth of another human being. And that other human being reveals to me the limits of my own knowledge, the limits of my own grasp of a moral absolute, for instance, or a particular moral principle. The presence of another human being and the idea of necessarily contested moral claims means that I'm constantly encountered, confronted by the limitations of what I know, the limitations of what I'm prepared to inveigh upon what that means is that what compromise in such cases, if we're thinking about the field of morality, what compromise means is it's not this is my ideal and this is what I have to settle for on the basis of the presence of this other person, but rather it's the very presence of the other person. It's the reality of their experience and it's the moral reality of the claim that they make upon my attention that then constrains, confines, chastens my conception of that foregoing moral claim itself. In other words, compromise doesn't become something that impinges upon my understanding of the moral terrain, but it becomes that which presses up against the limits of my knowledge that appeals to what ought to be a proper sense of human limitations and a proper conception of human humility. And it impresses upon that such that what I achieve by means of compromise with another person is something like a closer approximation to a moral ideal.
1: Right. So I get that in theory. No, no.
0: What this means then, what this means then, is that whether it's in politics or whether it's outside of politics, compromise, if we're talking about principled compromises with something that is of very, very high value. So here we're not talking about the transactional compromises Mm. in the realm of economics or in purely transactional politics. We mean compromise with something that has the status of let's say the small h holy. In other words, a very high value. Any compromise involves necessarily an act of recognition of the moral reality of another person and of the moral justifiability of their claim.
1: Yeah. All this I I can understand at the level of theory, but I don't think it gets around the initial observation. Mm -hmm. Let's take a really concrete, pyrotechnic and prescient example. Yeah. Say abortion. Wow. You went straight there. Okay. Okay. Well, because it's probably the easiest way to illustrate it. Yeah. Okay. So it seems to me that the claim of the pro life contingent in a place like the US, mm-hmm. not exclusively, but to a large degree, Predominantly, yeah. has a religious basis. Yep. We probably should be careful here because different religions say different things. Mm-hmm. So let's say a, a particularly Christian basis. Mm hmm. That you find in certain forms of evangelical Protestantism, but also that you find in Catholicism.
0: Yeah, and and I'd even say it's it's more keenly developed within the Catholic theological philosophical tradition, right. precisely because of very specific conceptions of ontology.
1: Right. Yes. And I'm glad you said ontology because mm. that's the point. That's right. So, and sorry, the reason I made that connection
0: is because many certainly within the Catholic tradition would say that this is not necessarily, say, a claim that stems from revelation, from a particular divine claim, but it has yeah. a very, very deep, a very rich, rich philosophical basis, which is why there are a great many people as well with particular philosophical, ethical leanings who would also make the same so, yeah. very strong so pro-capital-L ex- life claim, yeah, it's but not an ex- without any religious, religious claim. Yeah. Yes,
1: understand that. But let's go with me, and there will be crude simplification here. Sure. Okay? If, say, you're a Catholic, mm-hmm. and the Catholic position is that life begins at conception, mm and that therefore any termination of any pregnancy is murder because it is the extinguishment of yep. life. Not potential life, but life. Mm. Right? That is a doctrinal position mm. that rests on a religious authority. Mm-hmm. It is not something you can prove with some kind of mode of measurement that exists outside that religious mm. commitment. It's a holy claim. It's a holy claim. Mm. So... It therefore is a claim that cannot be given up by that person. To give that up would be no less galling for that person than permitting the murder of a fully breathing, living adult human, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. It's not something to be negotiated. But at the same time, the basis on which that moral claim is made is one that is incommunicable, not absolutely, Mm in the sense that I guess I've just communicated it. <laughs> but it's incommunicable in the sense that unless you sign up for whatever range of reasons to that particular starting point...
0: You I, will never feel its full weight
1: Yes, unless you're inside. And you will probably never find any That's kind right. of moral persuasion That's to right. it. That's right? Right. And in both sides of this argument, neither is more scientific necessarily than the other.
0: Okay, but hang on, make the other side now. So that is the... Pro-capital-L life.
1: Right. And the other claim would be that life begins at some other point. And here it's actually not entirely clear what the position is. But that's not the starting point. Well, the starting point is what? The bodily autonomy is but But no one would say, would they, that one's bodily autonomy permits one to harm another living being just because. I mean, if you regarded the unborn as Mm -hmm. a human being... Then that would be the end of the discussion. Mm. So, in other words, you have to get to the point of saying that's not a human being. Mm. It's, not, it's not purely bodily autonomy. It's no, bodily no, no, autonomy no. plus the absence of a. That's right. Okay. okay. I'm happy so, that's the start that. of that claim. Sure. That too is a claim that's communicable, but if you don't sign up to it, mm. then everything that flows from that mm. is something that you can't accept. That's right. What does compromise have to say Fabulous. in that situation?
0: Okay, I want to get to our guest. He's should we just get to our guest so... with this hanging yes, in Yes, 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 please. And then I wouldn't mind saying one quick thing before we... Actually, let me say one quick thing. <laughs> okay. and then we... because, because, because our guest yeah. who I should say is also sitting here very, very politely and tolerantly, maybe a little bit angrily, here in studios is being particularly kind. Let me just say this. Both sides of the debate are also not simply making claims. They are also haunted by horrors. Sure. I think this is fundamental to recognize, yeah, one side is haunted by the horrors of the extinguishment of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of lives in the world. The other side is haunted by the horrors of the lives of women who have been lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, through having to go ahead with pregnancies that they never should have had to have endured, yeah. lives that have been sunk, in, sunk into misery and impoverishment mm-hmm. uh, because of having to have had children. Pregnancies uh, as a result of violence. Rape, rape or incest. Or uh, I yeah. mean, there, there are all sorts of things. Here's the thing. One of the problems with the refusal to compromise or a kind of grudging approach to compromise is the problem of asymmetry. The belief that my side has to give up something simply too much. I have to make the real sacrifice.
1: But it seems both can make that claim here.
0: But the point is, is that in me saying what I have to give up here is a belief in the sanctity of human life that goes all the way down to my soul. By you wanting me to compromise, I have to give up something essential. Something holy. Something holy. The other side... It's just about convenience, or it's just about a little bit more discipline, or it's just a little bit about uh, a little bit more personal responsibility, or it's about a bit more whatever. On the or, opposite
1: side, or it's just about letting people make their own choices. Yes. or it's just about access to healthcare. Yes. or it's just about yeah. Or on, so on, what you're saying is, that on the other side, all you have to give up is an
0: idea that, let's face it, is probably fanciful anyway. Yeah, we are having to give up the pros- the possibility of human livelihood and life, the reality of the suffering of women in Mm. a still all too patriarchal world. So for any step in the direction of compromise, which I think must take the form of as much mutual accommodation as humanly possible, any first step has to be a mutual acknowledgement of the moral viability of another person's claim, which is very difficult in this case, but I think Mm. it's still possible. And a full recognition of the extent of the sacrifice that the other side has been willing to make. It's the acknowledgement... to make, not willing to Being be. asked to make. And yeah. it's the acknowledgement of the weight of that sacrifice that I think gives compromise its moral seriousness.
1: I think that would make for a much better public conversation about such issues, especially in a place like America. Yeah. But I don't think it would get you a result.
0: I think it would get us closer than we are now.
1: Let's bring in a guest. Hugh
0: Brakey is one of our favourite moral philosophers he's here and at this moment his eyes say what on earth did i just sign oh, myself yeah. up for?" <laughs> he's senior research fellow in moral philosophy at griffith university's institute for ethics governance and law he is a great friend of this show and he's a good friend to both of us you thanks so much for joining us once again on the Mindfield. thanks scott it's terrific to be here i'm not going to ask
2: anything you've heard us dance around <laughs> the issue where do you want to take us uh, I want to to jump right in uh, with something I think you 're going to see think is just just mad <laughs> by saying that I think there's a huge amount that compromise does in the context of abortion, and I think in actual fact the evangelical Christians to the very opposite side of politics, the way they behave is absolutely shot through with with compromise. How about that Oh, If we really believe, let's take the pro-Christian side, if we really believed in our bones that a murder was about to happen on the street, most of us here, most of us listening, would do anything to stop it. And by anything, I mean that we would use, if we thought it would be successful, uh, we would use violence, not violence through the law. We would personally risk ourselves. Some
1: do get close to doing that. We should say that.
2: That is absolutely correct. But think of all of those who don't maybe they're just not doing it because they think it's just practically unwise or, or they just fear the repercussions that might happen from that. But equally, maybe there's a lot of other things going through their mind as well. Maybe they believe in the rule of law so that they think that even though, given the perspective that they have, this is definitely murder and they feel that in their bones, it's also true that they are committed to the rule of law and, and obeying laws, and there being a due process with the way that violence is regulated in a society, and that all of those things aren't merely practical concerns but are absolutely moral concerns. Mm. Maybe they believe too in democracy. They believe in the system of government that they have, and that decisions like this should be made collectively by people giving reasons, making up their minds, and then going to the ballot box and making a decision. And that once something is made as a democratic decision, then it also generates respect, moral respect. And they feel this too in their bones. This is something that they care about deeply. And so when they're confronted with the fact that a murder might be happening, they're also confronted with the fact that the democratic decision has gone in this particular direction, the rule of law and the judgments of the courts have gone in this particular direction. And so they're asked to compromise here. And they're not asked to compromise with a a reality and with other people's values at this point They're asked to compromise amongst their own values. Mm. They're thinking about how can I wrestle with the fact that I am committed to peaceful collective decision-making, I am committed to democracy and the rule of law, and I am committed to this being a murder. How can I reconcile all of those three things? And it's true that some of them may not have all of those commitments and they may just commit the violence, Mm. and it's true that some of them may have all three of those commitments and they decide that that final one is enough to, to justify violence. But for the overwhelming majority, I suspect that the concern with murder makes them vote in particular ways, makes them undertake political action and civil society action in in lots and lots of ways, but it doesn't actually make them do all of the things that we might think follow straightforwardly from their conviction that it's murder. And the reason for that is that they are compromising because they have a moral basis for doing so. They see values that are out there in the world that they care about and they're having to wrestle in their own hearts with a situation where they cannot possibly give full credence and full flow to all of the value commitments that they have. And it's
1: something you could apply to any number of examples. Vegetarians, for example, who consider the consumption of meat to be murder or people who oppose the death penalty and consider that to be murder. You could make exactly the same come up with the same sort of taxonomy and get the same sort of result. This raises a question, though. If those same people, and I think your analysis is
0: spot on, if those same people were forced, felt in some way compelled to acknowledge that compromise, and I don't necessarily mean acknowledge it publicly, but for it fully to be acknowledged by they
1: themselves. You don't mean through action, no. So, for example, a doctor being forced to perform a procedure, no. you just mean internally. Yes. Right. My God, I am holding an
0: absolute value here with a way of life and comporting myself in the world that is completely inconsistent with that value. In other words, if they were forced to reckon with that and to say what I'm doing here is compromising, perhaps all would be lost.
1: They wouldn't be able to continue. So, the compromise with is that. predicated upon no one realizing they're compromising. No one fully acknowledging to themselves that they're compromising, and
0: maybe that's one of the ways that's one of the gifts that we give to one another- the gift of living inconsistent lives on the notion that sometimes inconsistency uh
2: is one of the compromises we make with the injustice of the world it's possible, but it could also go in the in the reverse direction, so it could be that when the compromise becomes apparent to them, they might think gee I've actually got more values than i than I thought that I did, and when I think about those other values, when I think about stuff like democracy, when I think about the rule of law and, and my love for my country that's founded on democracy and the rule of law, suddenly I realize that you 've exposed to me the fact that I am making this compromise with something that I thought was um, was sacred and holy but now i'm realizing i 've realizing i've got a lot of things in play, and i 'm realizing that maybe I should take a step back and think a bit more thoroughly about these other values that I have, democracy, rule of law, and so on, uh, peaceable existence, uh, because they matter to me. And I think that one of the things with those, those types of concerns, you know, rule of law, democracy, peaceability, um, is that there are certain contexts in which they become very, very clear and vibrant to us. Um, and the, the most obvious case is actual, actually civil strife is where we actually do come to blows and where we are actually fighting in the streets about these types of things. And then people like, uh, you know, thinking of the Enlightenment philosopher John Locke, who'll, who'll come along and say, look, whatever God wanted for us as we Protestants fight the Catholics, whatever God wanted for us, he didn't want this. Surely, look around you, we're tearing ourselves apart. And over what? It cannot be that this is what we should be doing. So are there Christian values that tap directly into a concern for peacefulness, for for not using violence to, to harm other people. I think there absolutely are. And I think it might be the case that a lot of those are sort of lying fallow. They sit in the background, they become part of the furniture with which we go about our lives. And we don't think of ourselves of compromising on the basis of them, even when we are. But at the same time, if we actually are made to feel the importance of those values and understand well, I don't want other people to just go around using violence on me as soon as I'm doing anything that they're not happy about. I want them to make that compromise. I guess I need to come to the table too. I think it might be... That exposing that type of compromise, it might, you're absolutely right, Scott, it might have the worrying conclusion, uh, but it might also have the illuminating insight that, well, actually, we have multiple values here and we can care about them. And once we care about multiple values, it is inevitable Mm -hmm. that we will need to compromise between Mm -hmm. them in the world in which we live. And in truth,
1: you'll probably get both. That as just a matter of practical reality, that's probably what would happen. But there's another way of describing what you've, I think, really brilliantly identified and that is, it's not so much compromise as striking a balance between competing holies. Hmm. So I'm not now compromising. I'm not sacrificing one holy for something, for someone else's, or for something else that is unholy, and thereby degrading or defiling that which is holy. I'm taking multiple holy things that pull in different directions in this particular instance and saying, what is the holiest balance between those things, i.e., not a compromise at all rather judgment. And that's a slightly different sort of a situation. What do you
0: mean by judgment there, Waleed? Do you mean judgment
1: as in discernment? Do you mean judgment yeah. as prudence? Yeah. Okay, I like that. Yeah, or wisdom or hmm. Happy with insight that. or something yeah. like that. Happy with judgment. But that's not necessarily the same thing as compromising no, the way that, that we mean it. So let's, let's completely leave the abortion example for a moment. In fact, probably for the rest of the show, because this isn't a show about that. And I don't want people to think that if we were going to do a show about that, we'd choose three blokes to sit guys, around yes, right. But it's more about the mechanics and... Hmm. The Theory of Compromise. Scott begins this discussion after telling us about how much he hates human beings, especially on planes. He begins this discussion by talking about how we are increasing the field of what is holy within our political orientation, right? And you see this easily on the progressive, sorry, on the conservative side of politics. You see this a lot with the valorization of particular kind of nationalist gesturing and things like that. Not even just the nation itself, but the gesturing around it, um, a series of commitments that are deemed to be beyond the pale of the nation, etc. That's really an expansion of the holy realm. Mm. You see this in the conservative side, especially in the more radical dimensions of it, where everything becomes subject to a kind of structural analysis. And as a result of that, anything that doesn't resist that structure is complicit in it and therefore must be condemned. That, and any kind of argument, any kind of compromise to that would actually be doubling down or joining the oppressors, right? So there's that's a kind of holy logic at play there, right?
0: There, there can be no accommodation. There can only be resistance. Yes, yeah.
1: there are only two options. Mm, that's right. Yeah, there is complicity or resistance. That is it. There is nothing else. That's a different situation, right? That's something where compromise is impossible because you're not dealing in a realm of balancing or competing holies you're in a realm of the holy versus the unholy, and it happens to be coextensive with particularly identifiable tribal political commitments.
2: So I think yes and no. I think, I think you're right that if, if they were the only values in play, then and you were making accommodations with the other side to create at least some semblance of peace or for strategic reasons or something like that, that looks exactly right to call that compromise. But the, the worry is that most of us aren't like that. And so what it, what it can mean is that if I have multiple values in play and I'm using judgment, I'm balancing them, as you say, to say, oh, well, look, I'm, I'm really worried about systemic injustices, but at the same time really care about democracy, care about the rule of law, all of these other, other types of things. From someone looking from the outside that doesn't have those other values, they're absolutely going to see what I'm doing as compromise. I'm sort of giving in. So I think that sometimes it can be very difficult for us to make out what's what's a type of compromise and what's merely a type of balancing. And I think when we we do have extreme positions on both the left and the right, what they're often focusing on is, you know, sometimes very particular, very narrow theories that really, really focus on one particular thing to the exclusion of everything else. And it's that exclusion that suddenly means the the care for coming to a peaceful accommodation and giving uh, the rightful respect to the person in front of us who, who disagrees with where we're coming from. All of that stuff suddenly becomes just morally irrelevant because we have our theory or we have our, our nationalist idea and that's all that, that's all that matters. So nothing and everything else is getting submits
1: in. to it. Democracy, Non-democracy, everything.
0: One thing that we haven't put into this list that I just think we need to include in the list is the moral contestation surrounding climate change. Mm. Because that is another one of those, okay, it's not a theory, it's an existential threat. How can any compromise Mm. in the face of an existential threat with the clock ticking, how can any compromise be accommodated?
1: Which is exactly the logic that plays out in war. That's exactly right. Mm. And I think in
2: those, in those cases, it's always a question of degree. There, there are a lot of the times, Are ah, if we have those types of other values, if there are other things we're concerned about, they will play out and they will influence us. But when we're talking about, well, when does compromise become uh, unacceptable? When are, we, when are we going too far? It's because we're giving in too much to values that we shouldn't be giving into. Uh, and equally on the other side, sometimes, you know, there are things we absolutely should never be compromising, but we, we're feeling like we should. And so it winds up being sort of a matter of degree. There's no easy way, I think. I mean, so in one sense, we can go compromising within our own values is acceptable. Compromising against our values on the basis of external things, that's more worrying. But the reality is in cases like war and climate change are are, are really good for, for pointing out that there really are, ultimate costs, And sometimes we do need to be very, very pragmatic and um, make sure that what we're doing is very effective in what we're doing to orient ourselves around those huge things that are confronting us. Mm. Um, So I think that you're right. The questions of compromise become really, really tricky then because we we both need to be acting in an effective way, uh, but we also need to be acting in a way that genuinely pays heed to the potentially existential concern that's in front of us. Can I make just two really quick points?
0: One of the litmus tests that Avishai Margalit uses to identify a compromise versus a rotten compromise, a compromise that never should have been struck, is he says, I mean, he does have the whole kind of criteria of if you are incapable of regarding the other party to the compromise as being someone who's worthy of moral recognition, then you shouldn't be compromising with them. I think that's right, and especially when we're talking about, say, appeasement of national socialism or talking about sort of appeasement with absolute nefarious forces. I think that's exactly right. One of the problems, we've talked about this before.
1: How do you define a nefarious force? Is the proliferation
0: of the number of people who are regarded as bad actors of such nefarious, bad faith that they cannot be engaged
1: with and, at and all. And that it would be naive not to consider them such... Exactly right. And wolves in sheep's clothing and so I, all this I'm kind
0: of thinking, okay, if we can all acknowledge that such people exist and that such compromises would in fact be rotten compromises, I think I'd prefer to sort of leave that particular criteria to the side for a moment. One of the things, while we acknowledge it, one of the things that Marguerite does point out is he says, when a compromise is struck by two parties at the expense of a degree of cruelty an ongoing immiseration of a third party who is not subject to, who is not a party to the negotiations. That compromise is almost certainly a rotten compromise. And I think there's something about that that's right. Sometimes a tenable, if somewhat unjust, status quo is allowed to persist. And yet the very people who will bear the most brunt of the ongoing conditions of that status quo are left out. Mm. of the ongoing negotiations. This would be one of the things, for instance, that we could raise with regard to the First Nations voice to Parliament.
1: May I say, the problem with this is that the examples that most clearly illustrate it are all the the thorniest ones we've discussed. Abortion illustrates it because... The whole pro-life argument is about a concern for those who are unrepresented. The voice of the voice That is the yeah. unborn. Mm. Climate change represents it because Future that is is about the unborn. Yep. And we know, don't we? I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. I think I can say with some degree of confidence that this is one thing democracy is very bad at, is representing the unborn because they don't vote. Mm. I mean, it's hard enough representing the young. Mm. We don't do that very well. And so we struggle with our political thinking to see ourselves in a community with the dead and those who are yet to be born, mm. as it is. And so even using that criteria, I wonder if it does anything more than land you back right in the morass that we were trying to escape.
0: Yeah. That's exactly right. Let me just footnote that with my second point. I'm still making the same points, ah, so I'm not, right, no, no, right. No, but there's just a footnote. I think the, the other thing that's worth pointing out, and if I can sort of take off Simone Weil for a moment and put on Emmanuel Kant, Kant had particular concern with the nature and the moral case of compromises. Hugh and I were talking about this before the show began. Um, While Kant was absolutely convinced that there are nefarious actors and there are actors that bring discredit to the human race as such that are a blight on our life together, he was worried about heaping too much scorn communicating too much contempt, too much disdain for such people, because he said too much on a bad actor, for instance, would cause the public as a whole to lose faith in what he called the human capacity for benevolence and for the achievement of the good. In other words, if we think about, we could think about compromise in deontological terms as serving a particular principle that is of very, very high value. And that might be the maintenance of something like a just and justifiable common life. We can also think about compromise in overtly teleological terms, which is by doing compromises, principled compromises, not compromises that seal off an issue, but rather create the conditions for a certain disagreement or certain debate to keep going, for a debate to be interminable rather than incommensurable. What that compromise can do is it can maintain an overall condition of faith in the possibility of human cooperation to achieve the good. By insisting on a particular value, we might actually be pulling down the temple around our own ears, if I can sort of use a, a biblical metaphor. We can defile hmm. the very capacity for faith in common human pursuits uh, in the name of achieving a particular small G or even capital G good.
1: All right, the buffet is yours here. Well, I was just going to
2: say it's fascinating because you would think that if the Kantian was going to give a reason on why we would be concerned with things that make things legitimate, and so I'm not talking here necessarily about political or, or democratic legitimacy, I'm just talking about anything, any process that we can engage in that's going to make us go along with the verdict, that's going to make us sort of accept what's happening and think that this is this is not such a bad thing even if prior to going through that process this is actually not something we we would have agreed with and it might be something as trivial as we're going out to dinner and we need to make a decision about that or it might be something where we're in our workplace our our organization is doing something that sort of clashes with our values a little bit and so When we have those types of value confrontations, there's lots of processes that we can work through where we can decide, let's flip a coin to to go out to dinner, and then that will make the judgment. Or we say, can we have a talk about this at work, and we make sure that there's been a dialogue and everyone has had their views changed, and because of that, we, we then are willing to go along with that judgment. And you would have thought calling those sort of sort of legitimacy reasons for do, for doing things, and obviously they're one of those things is impacting on our tolerance and and our willingness to compromise, because we still actually would rather go to the movies. But the reality is, we flip the coin. Dinner it is, so we're going to go along with that. We're compromising in in that sense, but despite the fact that when we do those t- types of things you would you'd think that the the kantian reason right for doing those types of things is it's a respect for the other person it's acknowledging that you and i are both moral agents in the world we both have our particular values and we both have our, um, our ways of seeing the world. And it's right for us to come to an accommodation that acknowledges both of our moral equalities in this. And it would be wrong for me, even if I was absolutely sure about the correctness of my values to, to sort of unilaterally override you, because that isn't paying respect to you as a moral agent and as sort of a centre of value that can come up with your own thoughts. So that's what you'd think, and I think we could probably find that in Kant, too, if we wanted this concern for legitimacy on that basis. Well, that's but his argument against lying, as a matter of fact. What you just articulated is his argument against lying. It's saying that the
0: other person's rationality is nothing for me to seek to engage with. I can seek to go around it by effectively imposing my own will on the flow of speech and thereby
2: bypassing the other person's rationality. Perfect. But it's interesting, as you say, Scott, that actually Kant came up with this other concern for going along with accommodations and processes that we've put in place um, in small scale personal interactions and large-scale institutional ones. And we we go along with them because of what we might otherwise have thought to be a utilitarian concern, because we are all in this world together and we do need, if we're not going to descend into violence and, and the use of coercive power at every step, to wind up making ways that it's possible for us to go forward without losing faith in the fact that Yes, we're human beings and we can disagree, but we're still capable of overcoming that disagreement through a variety of these other creations that we've come up with, from flipping coins to taking votes to having Mm. discussions.
1: And this is where democracy really comes into its own, right? Because one of the points about democratic compromise is it it need not be existential Mm. because you live to fight another day. Victories and defeats are temporary, contingent. And so the disagreement is perpetual and the answer's never final. That may not be true in practice, but at least it's true in theory. Um, we're out of time, Hugh. Great to have you in the studio with us. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Oh, it's been fantastic. Thank you for having me. Hugh Brakey is Senior Research Fellow in Moral Philosophy at Griffith University's Institute for Ethics, Governance and Law. That is it for this week's Mindfield, We're off the air and knees off to Europe.